Brian O'Leary, you're an Irish Jesuit, you're an author, you're a scholar on Ignatian spirituality and your latest book is on Ignatius and mysticism, Ignatius the mystic. How did you move into that area of Ignatian spirituality and that sense of Ignatius as being a mystic? A few years ago, when I put together a collection of my essays, I looked down afterwards and was asking myself, well, are there any gaps there that I could fill or anything there that perhaps I could expand in some way or other? And I noticed that there were two essays on Ignatian mysticism, one on the mysticism of Ignatius himself and the other on everyday mysticism, which would be based on that of Ignatius or interpreted in the light of Ignatius. So I just wondered, you know, how do you introduce somebody to Ignatius? Because not everybody would have access maybe to the original article or even to this book, but in a way that would expand and yet not add too much that's new to what's already here. So I thought from my own experience that most people who come across Ignatian mysticism do so in the context of reading a life of Ignatius or a biography of Ignatius. Now, that's fine, but the mystical experiences are not always expanded on, and the person is more interested in the flow of the life, and they tend to move on. <laughs> from one episode to another. So I just wondered if we could just simply take the mystical experiences as Ignatius himself recorded them and then reflect on those, put the focus entirely on those or as fully on those as possible without getting lost in the wider story of Ignatius's life. And so the main bulk of this little book, just over 100 pages in itself, so it's quite short, the main bulk of it, chapters 4 through 6, are simply that, taking Ignatius' description of what happened that we now call mystical and doing some reflection on it. Now, of course, each of these is set in a context of his life because there are Obviously, some relationship is between the mystical experiences and what was happening. Either that they were sparked off by something going on within himself and in his life, or they led to something, to certain decisions that he made as a result of, or certainly influenced by, the mystical experiences. So that's what the book is about. The first and last parts of it are a bit more general reflections on mysticism without getting into technical issues, but looking at, I hope, there are questions that would surface anyway for anybody who had been interested in the mystical side of Ignatius, principally through reading his autobiography, which is a major source for what we know. So that's kind of background to why I did this, it hadn't been done before, as far as I could make out, for about 40 years, at least in book form, where an American Jesuit, Harvey Egan, brought out a book entitled Ignatius the Mystic. His work is much more academic in some ways than mine, much more theoretical. But it was the last time that any book came out in English with that title. 
that was another gap, if you like, yeah. that I became aware of and decided, well, I'll do something about it. Because mysticism, it's a sort of an in-word nowadays as well. Can you say, and you do in the beginning and as you say at the end of the book, like maybe for the ordinary reader, what do we understand by the word mysticism or what should we understand by it? Yes, that's always the core question. I feel that in one sense, it's not the question that should come first. It's the question that should come after we read about Ignatius or even read about Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or Bernard of Gerber or Julian of Norwich or any of these, that you can't really go in with presupposed definition that the definition will come out of what you discover went on in these people when they had these experiences. So the question is legitimate, but when it's asked, it's, I think, important. Now, if we generalize a bit, which is fair enough, my approach is relatively simple. I propose that everybody, Christian or non-Christian, has an inner life. Something goes on within them, which is inevitable as they move through life. They have to think, feel, they react emotionally to things, they have desires. This is the inner life that everyone is aware of who pays any attention to themselves. Now, within that, in a Christian context, there is an awareness of God, the God of Christian faith, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of Jesus Christ. Somehow or other, that becomes part of a person's inner life. Now, the awareness of God, we simplify it even further, the awareness of God is central to the person's self-awareness, central to the person's sense of the meaning of life, but it will be experienced in different ways and also at different levels of intensity. Now, that's where I get my definition from, if you like, that everybody can experience God and does experience God, but the levels of intensity vary. And I would call a mystic somebody whose experience of God is very intense, at least from time to time, and that that person is the same yet different to their fellow Christians, that they don't see themselves or we can't see them as somehow better than others. This is a question I talk about towards the end of the book. Because the church has canonized people who are mystics. It's also canonized people who are not mystics. It can't be a question of holiness as such or closeness to God. But it's an intensity of awareness or an intensity of felt experience of God. Ignatius uses that word sentir from time to time, you know, about a felt knowledge or a knowledge of God which is both rational but also emotional, that mixes, if you like, the fusion of two different ways of experiencing God. And when that happens in a person, then they are at least moving into that deeper level that ultimately we might be willing to call mystical. That's a very helpful exploration of mysticism and 
mystical experience and how it fits into a relationship with God and our holiness and so on. And I know that's come from a lot of reflection and the reflection in this book is on St. Ignatius' mystical experiences and you go into those in detail in the book. But just for now then, can you give us an outline of those and what they're telling us about St. Ignatius and his experience of God? Well, everyone, I suppose, will be familiar with the convalescence that Ignatius had to endure from the wounds that he received at the Battle of Pamplona. And it was during that period of convalescence in his home at Loyola, in the castle of Loyola, that he had the first experience of something that might be called mystical, even though he would be a little bit hesitant. And that's the the vision that he had of, of Our Lady and the Child Jesus. And it, was, it came in the middle of his reflection on his future, really, which itself arose from his reading of the life of Christ by Ludolf of Saxony and the Flossancorum, or its collection of lives of the saints by Jacobo de Voragine. In response to what he was reading, he discovered that he was being moved in different ways. Emotions were coming up. Some of them he was accustomed to having from reading the Romances of Chivalry, which was his staple diet, reading diet, apparently. But others were more puzzling, where he found himself attracted to ways of life and uh, values that he wouldn't have thought of before, he certainly hadn't embraced before. So he began gradually to reflect then on the difference that was there when he was enthused by what he learned or read in the Romances of Chivalry. He remained enthused while he was reading, but once he stopped reading, he went into a kind of a dullness or a just apathy that didn't seem to last. Whereas when he read the lives of Christ or the lives of the saints, he was also enthused while he was reading. But afterwards, too, all of that continued. The attraction, the admiration, the the desire to emulate, all of that remained after he had stopped reading. And he felt that there was something significant in that, that difference. And that was initiation, you might say, into the reality of discernment and how to discern. And of primarily, I suppose, the need to discern when you have contradictory feelings and emotions swirling around within you. Now, that vision of Our Lady and the Child then came in that context. In one sense, it doesn't really matter whether we call it mystical or not. It was something, it was some kind of revelation, and Ignatius interpreted it as that, and it brought him into deep consolation and helped him to move forward. So he saw a vision of Mary holding the child Jesus. Jesus yes. When he moved to Manresa then, he describes God teaching him there as a schoolteacher teaches a child, a very well-known phrase. And he isolates then five different lessons that he was given there. And it's these lessons that take on the aura or the tone of something more mystical. They weren't just simply visions in the sense of the Loyola one. What's surprising is that he begins with the vision of the Trinity. And that 
perhaps is more his way of presenting them in a more theological context. We can't be absolutely certain, I think, that the order in which he recounts these experiences in the autobiography was exactly the same as what he actually experienced, but he interpreted them in this way. And in that context that I think we see his choice of Trinity as the first one is so significant that it's not just first in time, he's not actually saying that specifically, but that it's the first in importance and that everything that follows is interpreted in light of that Trinitarian experience. Then he has this experience of the way God created the world. Again, that can come from, you know, the creator God whom he has experienced as Trinity. Now the creator God gives us the world, including ourselves. Then he moves on from that to the experience of how Christ is present in the Eucharist that maybe the material world plays a large part in the Eucharist because it's bread and wine, but it conveys in the Eucharistic context and and presents us with the body and blood of Christ. And then he refers to experiences of seeing Christ in his humanity, followed by Mary, obviously in her humanity, but They seem to be quite different to what he saw in Loyola. There was more a deeper meaning to them. They were certainly more mysterious in the way that he describes them. But they were, it came out of that line of thought, if you like, that starts with Trinity, then creation, then Eucharist, then the humanity of Mary and of Jesus. After that comes the high point, the experience by the river Cardinaire, where he sees nothing. Sometimes we still use the word vision for it, but it's an intellectual vision. In the autobiography itself, he repeats again and again phrases like, he understood, he was given to understand, he saw with his understanding. That intellectual side of things, particularly at Cardinaire. Obviously, they were also present in the earlier visions. So they're the lessons that he learned. Can you just, for people who don't know Ignatius, just in one sentence, what he was given to understand at the Cardinaire River? Well, he doesn't say. I mean, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the puzzle there. We, he, he doesn't say what he was given to understand, except he saw everything with new eyes that it changed his way of seeing the world, of understanding the world, of understanding his own role in the world. Most commentators also say that he was taught discernment there in some radical way. It wasn't something completely new, but he understood it in a way that was full of insight and intuition and that colored everything that all his decisions afterwards. So he doesn't say this is, I understood this, that, and the other thing, but he implies that his whole world was changed, turned upside down almost by what happened there. Do you have thoughts on it yourself, Brian, about what that is? Because often we concentrate on the cannonball moment, you know, that he was hit by the cannonball and injured his leg and then he was laid up and that's where his conversion began. But this seems like a very powerful conversion of some sort at an inner level? 
I think you could say that the Cardinal was the final point in his conversion and that after that, when he left Manresa, he was living out the conversion. But up to then, he was still being taught. He was still being changed. His self-understanding was evolving. But everything somehow came together in that moment of Cardinal. And in a way, that is the deepest experience that he had up to that point of God, too, you know, God in God's self. Mm-hmm. Things began to, you could say he saw his past, his present, his future in a new light. So it included his future. Not that he knew precisely what he was being called, but he knew that there was something out there waiting for him, you might say, and that he had still further to go. In fact, this was only the beginning for him. Cardinal, for me, brings up this question, though, about knowledge of the world, knowledge of God. One of the surprising things about how he describes Cardinal is that he includes deeper understanding of letras, as he calls it. That's the written word or literature or learning in the broadest sense, one of the ways in which the word was used in his time. So he was given some understanding of secular learning. doesn't say anything about what that means, but it's significant because I'm not aware of any other mystic who made that claim. Usually it has to do with God or the things of God or the mysteries, and that was all there for Ignatius. But to have this reference to secular learning inserted there almost, you might say, on an equal footing with the more, if you like, faith-based intuitions. That is very strange. And it has been said fairly frequently that gave him the basis for what he later developed into the apostolate of education. But long before that, he undertook 11 years of study. This was after the Cardinal experience? After he had left Manresa, yeah. Now, why was that? If he understood so much at Cardinal, both about God and the things of God and the mysteries of the Christian faith and of secular learning, why did he need to go and start off as a simple beginner learning Latin in Barcelona? Or why did he go to the universities of Alcala and then Salamanca and then Paris? Particularly Paris, because that was real tough study. He was years there with a regime that modern university students would balk at. And yet he kept at it. And while he allowed himself to be distracted a fair amount when he was in Spain at Alcalá and Salamanca, he was much more cautious in Paris that when he discovered that his need to beg was part of his way of life at that time, his need to beg for food and for money, was distracting him from his studies. He consulted somebody, a friend of his, who advised him, no, don't do this during term time. During the summer, go up to now the Netherlands, and they're very generous there, and you'll be able to collect enough to keep you going for a whole year. So that's what he did. So that was to free him for full-time study so that he wouldn't be distracted. And it's also interesting that he says that during those years of study in Paris, that he didn't have the same consolations as he had in Manresa. 
So even prayer and mysticism and all of that wasn't allowed to distract him. Now, that wasn't his choice, I'm sure, but that was what happened, that he could give his full-time attention to the study. And how that fits again with how some interpreters you know, understand Manresa and Cardinaire is a puzzle. Some will say, well, he needed to learn a language, a theological language with which he could talk about his mystical experiences and communicate them to others. But I think that's very minimalist. Yeah. But that there was something that Cardinaire didn't give him, which study did give him. Not many people take that on and think about it and ask why. Why was that? Do we minimize what happened to Cardinaire so that we can exalt <laughs> what he learned in studies? No, that's not what's at stake here. But it's understanding the relationship between mystical experience and learned experience of the, the academy or mm -hmm. university studies and that. Can we see them as complementary, that there is a need of both? I don't think we have to put them on the same level necessarily. I mean, we can still say, well, the studies, however important, were still ancillary to the mystical experiences. Yes, I think we could argue that all right. But both were essential. Both were needed by him. I think that this has a contemporary relevance too, because since we've discovered the mysticism of Ignatius, but also on the wider level, since we've discovered the inner life as we experience it and understand it today, both psychologically and, and spiritually, there has been a tendency to become rather anti-intellectual in our approach to spirituality. It's in the ethos, <laughs> the atmosphere. Yeah. The ether. Uh, ether, yes. It's a constant cliche that you hear, get it from the head to the heart or bring, bring it down into the heart. There's truth in that. I think there's a profound truth in that. But it can be exaggerated because God can be found in the understanding as well as in the affectivity. And there's a whole history of Christian spiritual writers, you know, who have found God primarily through the intellect, through rational thought, ascending, you know, that whole image of, of a ladder, you know, which is quite common in the tradition. That started off as an image of an intellectual ascent, which you find in Augustine, you find it in Bonaventure. So say the Franciscan tradition with the affectivity, but he worked with that image and that intellectual understanding of the image. In the Jesuit tradition, Robert Bellarmine has that ascent of the mind to God by a ladder of things created, I think was the full title. So today's culture downplays that part of the tradition, whereas I think Ignatius would have been very aware of it through what happened at Manresa, where he was given to understand. <laughs> he didn't record how he felt after Cardinaire. He recorded that he was given to understand all sorts of things. It's fascinating because what I'm thinking is, if you look at what happened after the, the, the Ratio Studiorum, the whole Jesuit taking up of an educational project, which is what the Jesuits are renowned for as well, very much that intellectual tradition, but also the 
education in the arts and in music, but across the board. I mean, that, that was an almost a revolution in education that followed and is there to this day in many different ways. And the intellectual apostolate is really important. It strikes me in what you're saying that the one thing that a lot of mystics or mysticism talks about is non-dualistic, like not oppositional of one thing against another. And so not pitting the head against the heart or the reason against the heart, but it's more of an integration. Hmm. And I think you're right that nowadays there is more of a, a bias and leaning toward the heart, but that would be a dualism that people who are familiar with mysticism would reject, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating reflection, Brian. It takes you on in terms of the essence of maybe the difference of the Ignatian mysticism, maybe as compared to, say, Teresa of Avila or the other mystics, where there are overlaps. That's, I think, a very interesting mm-hmm. move. And as you say, 11 years, wasn't even that he studied for three years. I mean, if it was just to get a language, you'd think you'd have your mm-hmm. theological language after a couple of years. 11 years a long time to be studying <laughs> and again it's a time that Jesuits spend actually in their own training to this day some of them can spend yeah. up to 10 or 11 years you know in some ways I think the Cardinal will always be the most mysterious of the experiences because in one way he says so little he implies so much which one has to intuit in a way yourself. Later mystical experiences like La Storta are easier because they're, they're more visual it's the one of the Trinity again, isn't yeah, it, in that's the story? Yes. Well, the Father and the Son, the anyway, the Spirit is, again, you have to guess that he's there. <laughs> we know that he's there. But it's the vision of the Father placing Ignatius with the Son, which meant a lot to him on a personal level. But because of it happening at that particular time when he was on his way to Rome, where eventually he founded the Society of Jesus, that it was an affirmation that he was on the right track and that God would bless whatever plans emerged eventually. I mean, he didn't know that he was founding a religious order at that stage, but that he was going to Rome as an ordained priest now with other ordained priests, and they were going to put themselves at the service of the Pope. Now, one of the striking things about the last order vision is that immediately afterwards, when he was talking to the two people who were traveling with him, Favre and Linus, he interpreted the vision immediately as referring to the whole group of companions, not just to himself. So even though he was placed with Christ carrying the cross, he interpreted it as meaning the whole group were placed with Christ carrying the cross. So his mystical experience at that point anyway was very corporate or communal in the way he interpreted it. That's interesting um, again, isn't it? You have a mystical yeah. experience, but you interpret it yeah. corporately. Yeah. yeah. And then his later experiences in Rome, probably even in one sense more difficult even than Cardinal, except that he tells us much more about them. I mean, he teases it out in a way that he doesn't tease out Cardinal. We can read in the spiritual diary about his experiences of the Trinity of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, we find that he is now willing or free enough to talk about even his bodily, physical reactions, his hair standing on end or his feeling warm and all, all of that, which this kind of 
thing that you associate on a popular level, if you like, with physical experience. He never stressed it before. And he only records it now because he wasn't writing for anybody else except himself. I mean, it's just kind of a minor miracle that the text survived. But it shows that in Rome, maybe he was also feeling freer within himself. He's had years of experience of prayer and of different ways in which God responded to him. He wasn't always on a mystical high, you might say. Those years of study in Paris, he seemed to have been on a rather kind of neutral plane, you know, that he was carrying on as a good Christian does and prays as a good Christian does. But Nothing extraordinary would seem to be happening there. But in some way, it all comes together for him in his maturity in Rome, and his experiences become more and more Trinitarian. So in a way, he ends up where he began with the first vision or experience in Manresa. But now it's it's totally different in the sense that he has lived with this now for... 20, 30 years, and he's accustomed to it, he knows it. It's not just it he knows, but he has come to know the persons of the Trinity, and he relates easily with them, and they seem to relate <laughs> easily with him. You know, yeah. That mutuality is there, and he's at home with that. Yeah. And Brian, finally, this book, what would you hope for the person who picks it up to read it? Why did you write it, or what would you hope for the reader? Well, I would hope that a reader would get a greater understanding, to come back to that word, of Ignatius himself, particularly on the level of how God was leading him. He used that phrase for Manresa, but he knew that God was leading him throughout the whole of his life as well. So how that happens, and I suppose I'm suggesting implicitly that even though we may not have mystical experiences of the intensity of Ignatius, that we all have similar experiences, that we do experience God in our inner life when we pay attention to it and when we're willing to remove obstacles or resistances and when we're willing to integrate some prayer you know, into our day-to-day lives. That would be a twofold desire that people understand Ignatius and his mysticism. Through that, understand how God does deal with people, and in general, with all people, and then discover on a, on a personal level how God is dealing with me, with my particular personality and characteristics and life history and experiences and ups and downs and failures and successes in life that... God is in all of that as God was in the life story of Ignatius.